University of Maryland, Baltimore County President Freeman Rabowski shares his insights on building and sustaining an inclusive, high-achieving, and innovative university. He's interviewed by author and Robin Hood CEO Wes Moore. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. All Afterwards programs are also available as podcasts. It is my honor to join a, uh, a, a mentor, a guide, uh, a role model, and uh, one of our society's truest leaders, Dr. Freeman Robowski, to talk about his new book. And Dr. Robowski, uh, I, I have to start with, the, with this new book uh, entitled The Empowered University. Uh, what exactly is The Empowered University? Thanks, Wes. I'm delighted to be here with you. The, the, the notion is this, that our universities should be empowered to look in the mirror and to be honest with self. And we use it as a way of talking about leadership and talking about our society that uh, institutions that are healthy and that are secure should be willing to recognize whatever is going well, to acknowledge that of course, but also to be willing to say, but we've got a way to go. And so it's empowered to be honest with self. And the, the subtitle, which is shared leadership, culture change and academic success starts with the notion that it's not about the one person. It's not just about the university president, it's about all of us working together with a vision of educating students. And that's the notion of empowerment. I, and I, I found the subtitle really interesting too because if you even look at the, at the cover yeah. of the book, you, you don't have one listed out as higher than the other or a greater priority than the other. You, you really have them almost laid out as concentric circles. Yes, you said uh, that well. they all rely on each other. Yes, exactly and, right. And so, so why was that? Well, why was that? I have to tell you, I think you know I get goosebumps doing math. I'm a mathematician. And the notion <laughs> of those circles, if you look at them, you'll see some intersection, that they are connected. And, and that's the point, that when we think about culture change, when we think about academic success, when we think about leadership, those are not separate topics. There are ways in which we work collectively through those, through this intersection, to think about how I, as a leader, whether I'm a college president, a provost, or faculty member, can work effectively in a culture to educate students. And so it is the notion of building synergy in the sense of empowering the university. And what's really interesting, and I think your, your life story and, and your trajectory at UMBC, you really tell an important story in this where the empowered university is never an overnight thing. Uh, the idea of building culture, the idea of academic success, the uh, idea of, of shared leadership, uh, those can't just be catchwords. Those are things that have to be infused. Those are things that have to be nurtured. Those are things that you have to give time. You plant the seeds and then give time to grow. Uh, and, and I think the experience that you had at, uh, at, at UMBC is actually a great example of that. As a person's going through their own journey, uh, how do they think about that in terms of patience and timeline, which for a lot of leaders is not always an easy thing? Sure. I and mean, you start with the idea that our campus, UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, is fairly young. We're under 60 years old. We were founded in the 60s. And, and I've been fortunate to be there as president for over 25 years. And what I've learned is that the success that we have had, and it's been considerable, has come as a result of the work of a lot of people taking the time to analyze, to assess the problems, the challenges, to get to know our students, to understand how the culture needed to change, and then to work in a, a very organized approach to making a difference. 
And that means what? It means that we understand that in American higher education, half the students, unfortunately, who go to colleges don't graduate. So how could we increase substantially graduation rates on the one hand? It also means that we need to think about what does it mean to be an educated person? To, to understand, quite frankly, that it takes more than simply sending students through classes, that we're trying to touch the hearts and the minds of people. Uh, it means that we have a, a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, which says when students are coming to our institution, we want to make sure they succeed. Most people who go to college remember when the dean or the president said, look at the student to your left, look at the student to your right, one of you will not graduate. Well, that's actually a terrible thing to say to young people or people who are not so young who come back. What we say is look to your left, look to your right. Our goal is to make sure all three of you graduate. And if you don't, we are in fault also. So it's a matter of having the patience as an institution, but as you say, as an individual, to know you don't make substantive progress overnight. When you talk about improving graduation rates or discussing what it means to be educated or helping people understand how to work with people different from themselves, it takes time to shape a culture to make for success. And so for, for leaders who are going through this process, how, how do you know when you're on that right path of shaping the culture? How do you sure. know? Because sometimes you need those benchmarks to kind of sure. to let you know, yes, you keep going, you're in the right direction, right. or you need to change direction. You know, I, I use the, uh, a, a quote from Eric Weiner's book, The Geography of Bliss. It says, culture is the, the sea we swim in. It's so all-consuming that you really don't even appreciate it until you get out of it and look back at it. And so I would suggest, and the book suggests, my colleagues, um, Peter Henderson and Philip Rouse, the, the co-authors and I, all are saying we have to get out of the culture. We have to step out of it and look back at what's going on. And when thinking about success and how successful we are, the two approaches that we have worked on for years are analytics, use of data in looking at trends and disaggregating the data and looking at women and people of color and others, number one, uh, and number two, and looking at the majors of students and their economic backgrounds. But number two, doing focus groups. Uh, I have learned over these years, my colleagues and I agree, that the best way to understand what's going on beyond looking at data, which can seem a little cold, is getting to listen to the voices of people, uh, of the students, yeah. of our colleagues, what's working, what's not working, to understand what is, quite frankly, sometimes very challenging, to understand what excites them. It's in that listening process that we learn more about who we are and what the challenges are. And I think one of the fascinating things, uh, one of the many fascinating things that I think has happened at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County under your leadership is, is how you've also reshaped what people see when they look at UMBC. Uh, you know, this, this was a, a university that, that prior to you, frankly, uh, you know, felt like a, 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 it was a sleepy commuter. Uh, a school, and, and now we're talking about uh, you know a, a community that is uh, is is leading the nation in many ways in in, uh, in how it's training and teaching scientists and mathematicians and engineers, and particularly we're not talking about scientists, and math mathematicians and engineers, but students of color right. who are scientists, sure. mathematicians, engineers, etc. Sure. Uh, you know, so talk to talk to us from how that transition took place from going from again the sleepy commuter school to now being as, as many people you know, 
blissfully and joyfully nicknamed the Nerd Factory, <laughs> uh, the House of Grits. Uh, talk about that transition. Sure, sure. First of all, it's true that people continue to talk about our first 20, 25 years as, as years when we were not well known. Uh, and, and, and in many ways, uh, we were still commuted. We had not become residential as we are now. But in those first years, I want to make this point. Faculty were working really hard, faculty and staff, to build a solid foundation to make sure the academic enterprise was sound. And it was in that setting when I first came that I realized we've got some good stuff here. My colleagues and I said, listen, we have set some high bars in the academics, and we need now to see how we build on that and build the visibility. So we are now a campus that has students from over 100 countries. Uh, you're there in New York. The fact is that when you walk down the, the corridor on our campus, you will see students from all over the world. It feels like the Plaza of Nations at the UN. Uh, it, people talk mm -hmm. about us in science and engineering, and, and it's true. We lead the country among predominantly white institutions in sending blacks on to get MD-PhDs. But, but more important than that, quite frankly, is that we are educating students of all races across disciplines. The, the media people always love the science and engineering, and those areas are important. But I am really exciting that our classes in Greek and Latin are full at 8 in the morning, for example. Mm -hmm. That we have students in the arts, that Beckett is our muse, that we get to the American College Theater Festival, that we have so many students studying languages and culture. Um, I'm studying French now. I've got plenty of students on campus who speak French to me all day long. And so it is a place where, yes, STEM is important, but the arts, humanities, and social sciences are important. And, and I bring that up because of something we say in the book, which is we as a society have to appreciate the fact it's not one area of disciplines and another versus another. It's not STEM versus non-STEM, it's how do we integrate these disciplines? How do we teach our future scientists to appreciate the value of ethics, but how do we make sure our humanists are looking at digital humanities and using technology? And so a part of looking in the mirror at the university and looking in the mirror at a society is to say, how do we teach our students that they can be proficient in a number of areas, that they can learn and love languages and culture, even as they study math or vice versa? It's uh, in, you know right now. I also feel like this book is coming at such a such a powerful time because you know we've never seen uh, the, the the university as a system under such attack. Yes. Uh, the virtue of higher education sure. about why people need that. Can we sure. just do more training and sure. so on and so forth? Uh, uh, jobs of the future. Uh, how how when you think about the empowered university? Yes. Uh, what's your response yes. to that critique or that criticism? And what's the role of the empowered university yes. to counter that sure. type of rhetoric? I think when an institution is empowered, and we we are feeling that sense of empowerment on our own campus, we are able to look at the big picture. And the big picture should, should say several things. Number one, the college is not for everyone. That a lot of students don't want to be in a traditional liberal arts setting, and they they have the right to have other post secondary opportunities. They may later on come to that. But number two, that we need to appreciate the value of community colleges. Uh, they, they're educating almost half of all students in America. And that as, as a university, we need to be connecting with K-12, with community colleges, and understanding what's happening in the post-secondary world. And so we talk about being empowered to appreciate the genius of the and versus the tyranny of the or, and that's a Jim Collins phrase. Mm -hmm. And it means that it's not one thing or the other. It's not research universities or liberal arts colleges or community colleges. It's that American higher education is rich and diverse with all these different types of institutions. When people ask me if higher education matters, my first response is always, absolutely. <coughs> Excuse me, in fact, what I say is, 
if you show me a family that has seen some success in college, that is, at least somebody has gone through and gotten a college degree and gone on to get a job, we will see a family where they continue to want others to go. I don't see families that have had success in science in, in, in college, in universities, saying, no, we don't need this anymore. Uh, the challenge we face that most people don't realize is that only about 30% of America's families have experienced college graduation. And if you've not experienced it, you don't really appreciate what it can do for your family to move into the middle class. And so two things we need to be saying that the book talks about, empowered to say to our nation and beyond, higher education matters. Absolutely. We're creating citizens. We're teaching people how to think critically. We're teaching them the importance of civic engagement, all these things that we do at UMBC that other institutions do. But at the same time, we should be empowered to look internally at self in the mirror and say, but we can be much better. There's more that we can do. And when you think about the, there's more that we can do, yes. I, I, I can't help but think about uh, your own personal story and your own personal journey. Mm. Uh, you know, a journey that, that, that brought you from Alabama to, 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 to Maryland and, uh, and, and now leading one of, the, uh, one of the most prestigious and forward-looking universities in, 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 the, in, the, in the world. Uh, can you tell us a, a bit about your journey uh, and, and the role that education played in that journey? I appreciate that. Mm. I am a, uh, very fortunate to have been a participant in the Children's March in Birmingham and to be the, the child of, of educators. Uh, and so all of my life I have loved reading and math, and that's what I want for every child, to, to appreciate the, the meaning of words and to understand their connections uh, across these disciplines. And so I, I am very fortunate to be at a university that allows me to get to know people from all over the world. I could never have imagined as a black kid growing up in Birmingham in the 50s and 60s that I would be at a university that, that has people from every continent. Uh, because what I'm able to see on our campus at UMBC uh, that is so remarkably inspiring is people from countries that are so different in many ways, and yet my students come and they appreciate what they have in common. They appreciate cultural differences, but they also appreciate that here in our country, we have brought in people from all over the world who come to learn, who come to talk about ideas and to prepare to be leaders. And so I, I think of my own journey as one where I had the chance to be around Dr. King and the children and to go to jail and to have that experience as a little child kid, a child leader in that civil rights movement, who then was inspired though to understand that through community, and through values, uh, we as a university can prepare people to lead in civic engagement, in STEM work, in the arts, and in other areas. So my journey, actually, I, the, the year that I, I had the, the, the honor to march with Dr. King and the other children is the same year my university that UMBC was founded in 1963 by the Maryland legislature. And so we, we are together, and I've been there at the university over 30 years. I would also say for public higher education and private higher education, as we tell our stories, the question has to be, who are the people who are giving us support? Whether it's our donors, our alumni, but empowered also means looking at context. And so for every public institution, it's looking at the context of one state. We are fortunate in Maryland, and I say this around the country, to have uh, a governor and a legislature who come from heavily from different parties, political parties, and, and, they, and they work well together the way American democracy is meant to work. And so uh, our political 
leaders, our elected officials, the governor and the legislators, work very closely to ensure that we keep building the quality of education and higher education. And it has been very encouraging to those of us in the field to appreciate that in the state of Maryland, uh, the, the understanding is very clear that the future of our state, the future of our citizens, of the economy, of our families will be closely connected to the quality of, of education and higher education. And you, you talked about how uh, if you look at UMBC student body, and the student body of so many different places, yes. uh, they aren't just people from Baltimore, or nor no. just Maryland, nor just from the United States. Right. I mean, this is a, this is a global community. Yes. Uh, what was your first exposure to the global community, and how did it change you? I had the privilege of studying in Egypt. My girlfriend at the time, now wife, and I studied in Egypt as exchange students from Hampton University in Virginia at the American University in Cairo, and there were students from all over the world there, and it was the first time that I was in an environment where people first didn't speak English, uh, except for those at the university uh, often did not speak English, and where I began to learn some things about another culture, another religion, about, uh, about, uh, about the Arabic language, uh, but most important to see how people viewed us as Americans and as African Americans, and it was a broadening experience in many ways, and it led me to appreciate what UMBC does today as we work to encourage more and more of our students to have exp experiences abroad, as we have more and more students who come to us, as we have faculty from all over the world. Uh, and and uh, the most important thing I, I tell Americans all the time is for us to first appreciate the, the beauty of the American democracy, but secondly to appreciate the responsibility we have uh, in, in, in this country, in this most privileged of countries, to understand humankind and to reach out to other people with uh, a sense of welcoming to say that we are all a part of this human race. And how much of, how much of your education uh, was, was, was that? I mean, when I think about your leadership and, and your impact on me and on yes. so many others, sure. uh, it is, it's, it's, a, it's an, it's an all-encompassing love. It's a, it's a, it's a love of, of, of accepting people where they are. Um, and and bringing them all along this in this conversation. So there, there's a there's a there's a formalized education. Sure. Uh, and there's something that you really touch on, which is the informal yes. education yes. Of, yes. of the exposure. Sure. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. As well? And you know, I, my experiences were shaped by being in Egypt, by being at my beloved Hampton in Virginia, and then my grad alma mater, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And and you and I in in the late in the early 70s when I began to understand that the world was was predominantly white, quite frankly, that I'd been in, in my world in Birmingham and at my college while we had professors from other races. The fact is my world had primarily been African-American and I began to see the differences and the challenges and the strengths of being in that integrated society at Urbana-Champaign. However, uh, all those experiences shaped me and prepared me for and working at other institutions for the UMBC experience. Uh, historically, UMBC is very special in the state of Maryland because it is the only university founded at such a time that people of all races could go, could come there. And at that yeah. time, we were talking black and white. So from the beginning, we were uh, uh, an institution with people from different races. But this is what I saw as I've gone around the country and, and what we have worked to improve on at UMBC, we have, and this is a controversial point, but I'll make it, um, we have desegregated now in that we have students of all races at all types of institutions, but we have not truly integrated. 
And I, at this point in my life, I have to just tell the truth. The fact is, when you go to most places, you see people with people like themselves. Now, there are times when it's great for people to know people from their own culture, their own background. Of course, we should appreciate self. But the question we have to ask as we talk about the empowered university and empowered society is, are we teaching our young people how to interact substantively with people different from themselves? And this is one of the strengths of UMBC. We work really hard both in the classroom and beyond the classroom to do one thing. We say this to students from the beginning, get beyond your comfort zone. You don't want to know people simply from your own state, from your own race, from your own country. You want to know people from all kinds of backgrounds as human beings because the world is so diverse. And, and we, we don't talk enough about how we should go about coming to appreciate other people, caring about other people who are very different from ourselves. This is part of our success at UMBC. And, and yet, as we say, success is never final. We can always be better. So empowered university, empowered to be better than we are. I know as a, uh, we, we, we saw that uh, perfectly on display. Uh, and I say this as a, as a, as a native Baltimorean and, and, and still a current resident of Baltimore. Yes. Uh, we saw that perfectly on display almost, almost five years ago after the, uh, after the, the, the uprising around the, 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 the death of Freddie Gray yes. and, and the leadership role yes. that you personally played, the leadership role that UMBC played, uh, <coughs> the fact that you really called on our society to do exactly what you just said, to, uh, to, to understand the interconnectedness yes. uh, of all of our joy and the interconnectedness of all of our pain. Sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about that moment sure. and why it was so important for you yes. to use your voice and the voice of UMBC uh, in such an empowering way. You know, I'll never forget coming back to campus one day during that period when we were all so worried about the children of Baltimore, about citizens there, and there was a large sign up over one of the buildings, and it said, We are Baltimore too, our TOO. And it, mm -hmm. my students had put this up, and it was because, you see, our campus is in the suburbs. It's uh, adjacent to the BWI airport, 600 acres, and so we were not physically connected to what was going on in the city, but we were spiritually and emotionally, psychologically connected because it is our city. From the roof of my building, you can see downtown Baltimore. And my students, who have been involved in all kinds of civic engagement, and faculty and staff who have been working, were there connecting and working to be supportive. People don't realize that Baltimore is the site, this Baltimore region, the site of some of the most educated people in the world. In fact, when looking at an African-American population, we are the second best educated community in the country, according to a report from mm. the Brookings Institution. And so you've got a lot of well-educated people of all races in Baltimore. And then you have people who, as is the case in New York, in America, who are challenged, who need our support in so many ways with education. You heard me say only 30% of Americans have had the experience of going to college, of graduating from college. And so the point I'm making is that um, the notion of an empowered university should be empowered not only to look inward at the campus, but the big question is, so what are we doing to help the children of our regions? What are we doing to help people who are poor? What are we doing to deal with that income inequality challenge we face, the academic uh, disparity that we see, the health disparity? And so a part of what we were doing during that period 
is what other institutions have worked to do when they've had challenges, and that is to get into the city, to get into the environment, to get involved in the tutoring and in the working on policies that can make a difference. And, and there's much more work to be done. But what I can tell you that our university said was we are proud to be a part of Baltimore, and that we stand by. What was what was the reaction to to the students and 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 I say primarily because you know you have students who who are from West Baltimore yes. and you have students who are from Western who are who are from uh, you know uh, Western China you yeah, have yeah. students from all over the sure. globe sure. Uh, sure what what did you see amongst the students when everything that was happening yes. very yes. much in whether it's their adopted backyard yes. or, or their real backyard sure. uh, how how what did you see during that moment right people were trying to understand the issue. And I think what you'll appreciate is that we were having faculty and staff uh, were having town hall meetings and we were infusing work into the curriculum that looks at issues of poverty and race and discrimination and most important, what it means to try to reshape the thinking about people who have not had voice. And so large numbers of the courses, particularly in the humanities and social sciences and the arts, uh, have focused on those areas. We are a part of the, the national movement of imagining America, and that's with faculty uh, working with students to look at these challenges that we face in our society, in our cities, and it's not one city or a couple of cities. These are problems around the country. We know this, of disparities. And so a part of our solution has been to infuse these challenges into the work that students are doing in the classroom and in community engagement so that as they become leaders, whether they're going to be a lawyer or a teacher or a scientist, they have a better appreciation of the devastating impact of poverty, of the strength that children bring to the classroom, and most important, of the possibility of changing the way we do business of rethinking mm. the narrative so that we stop blaming those people who are less fortunate. And at the same time, teach young people how to take as much responsibility as they can, even as we work to change policies that can be so discriminating. As, as, as you know, and, uh, and uh, just for full disclosure to everyone, uh, everyone watching and, and listening, uh, Dr. Robowski is one of the first people that I actually went to for guidance when, uh, when my role as, as, the, as the CEO of Robinhood, uh, you know, when I was thinking about and debating taking this role, he was one of the, one of the first people I actually contacted to get his thoughts. Uh, and, and for that and so many other things, I'm, I'm eternally grateful. But, you know, I, I, you know Robinhood, our organization, is, is one of the largest poverty-fighting organizations. Yeah. In, in the country, uh, and we think about the role that poverty plays uh, inside of uh, inside of our society. The, it's, it's, it's traumatic effects and impacts on on everything um, that we see. One of the things that you've always focused on is on this concept of brain development. Yes. Um, and, and, and how exactly are we are we exercising this muscle? How are we creating platforms that every child, every young person, every person period has a chance to exercise that that muscle in a in a, in a liberating way? Um, and we think about this role that these disparities play in our in our large society. Um, there are some people who say that you know what, understanding those discrepancies, uh, that's not my issue. That's not my thing. 
and and for you who is uh, who is taking such a lead on educating not just our current but future leaders in our society, how do we help people to understand? How are we training our 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 our, our scholars to understand the role that each and every one of them have to play in addressing some of these societal schisms, regardless of what occupation they go into or regardless what what uh, what field of profession that they choose to take. Sure, on. you know I I go to economics for a moment just to say all we need to do is look at the in income inequality challenge in our society and the large the millions of Americans of all races that are in the bottom group and how that group grows all the time as we see wealth just at the top, more and more exponentially at the top. And the challenge is um, a structural challenge as we think about how we help our children with education, which is a piece of it, but there are other issues that our society needs to appreciate, and that is the advantages that those of us who are entitled, the all kinds of advantages that we have, whether it's about housing or lo loans or it's about ways of building our families. Um, so understanding the devastating impact of things like poverty and race and gender discrimination can help us understand how solving those problems will lift us all up as a society. For, for my campus, what's been amazing to me is that our colleagues for a long time, for years and years, have known we needed to be talking with, working with, focused on um, people in our inner city areas and in other places where we have challenges throughout the state of Maryland. And, and what that means is looking at ways of helping children to learn. Uh, we And looking at public policy, we focus a lot on public policy, whether education policy, all the way in grad school programs and research and grants that we get, uh, in looking at issues of finance, looking at issues involving health care. Uh, and, and so there is this need for a broader understanding by the public of all of the ways in which poverty, for example, has that negative impact, including what NIH tells us now about the learning process, the issue of stress and its relationship to learning. And yet what I can tell you is as we work on our programs from first-generation kids coming to college to children who've been first-time offenders, we see the strength of those children. We see their ability to think and how we can hone those skills. We work with schools in Baltimore, from Lakeland Elementary to some of the other schools, and are seeing scores going up in reading and math. We are, we've developed programs designed to help leaders. Uh, the Sherman Scholars is an amazing program involving young math and science teachers, people with majors who will work in middle schools, for example, and those people work in the schools to help those children. America needs to look at performance of children and understand if they're not doing well, then it's a more complicated matter than they're simply not, they're simply not studying and working. It's much more complicated than that. We have to give teachers more support, for example. We're working on that in our state. We have to find ways of having outcome, but yeah, outcome and accountability that will be related to, most importantly, related to the support we give to teachers and children and families. And it's that support that can make a big difference. Yes, and you know, and, and speaking of, of of support, it's uh, there. It's interesting also knowing what support do we need, what support do we ask for, right? Um, and uh, you know, there's there's a there's a great story in your in your book, and 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 uh, 
uh, I want to turn to it. It's uh, it's uh, on page 71, uh -huh. and it's in the chapter about uh, grit and greatness. Yes. Uh, but you're talking about how at the time you were the interim president. Oh. Uh, this was 1992, and uh, and Governor William Donald Schaefer, who was yes. the, the former mayor of Baltimore, right. then at that point became the governor for, yes. for, for the state of Maryland. Um, but you met with him, and you had a chance to articulate uh, your vision and, yes. and, uh, and what you wanted to do and what you thought could happen. And, and there's a point here where, uh, uh, where he asks you and he says, uh, after hearing you speak, he says, Freeman, you know, what can I do to support your candidacy to become president? I'm going to call the regents right. and ask them to make you the president. Yes. Um, and, and your response was fascinating because at that point, I think everybody, a natural human response would have been, that sounds great, thank you so much, Mr. Governor. Um, and your response was uh, 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 that please do not contact the Board of Regents. Right. Um, and the thing that you asked him for was not for a call, not for a recommendation. You asked him for trees. Yes, yes. You asked him <laughs> for trees. First of all, can you talk a little bit about that? If you know anything about politics, our governors are always very powerful, but, but I, I wanted to become president if the regents wanted me to be president. I didn't want anyone saying that the governor made them do it. We all loved Governor Schaefer. He was a do-it-now kind of person. We've got a great governor now I'm doing the same thing. But this is what I would say to you. Um, I knew he didn't have any money, but he wanted to show support. We were a young campus, and we were up on the roof, and I looked around, and I knew I needed more. we needed more green space there, and I knew something he had some power over, and I said, give us trees. And um, hmm. it was, and he looked at me and smiled, and he said, I can do that with the Department of Natural Resources. <laughs> and they did. The nice story is before he died, I brought him, I went and picked him up from the senior citizen's place uh, of the Charlestown Retirement Community and, walked, and drove him around. And I said, it, it was 20 some years had gone by and these little trees had become these beautiful trees. And I said, Governor, you did mm. this for us. And he got tears. It was so special. Mm. It was a, just a special, a special moment. It really was. And, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's also very symbolic. Uh, because you know you had these uh, these these saplings and these seeds yes. and these small trees sure. that grew sure. into into these uh, mammoth things and, and frankly trees that will outlast us all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That those trees will be on that campus. Those trees will be here and they'll be looking after generations after generations and providing shade uh, and support. Uh, and and it's it's also very emblematic about how we think about higher education and the point. And, of higher education. You know, and, and about the big problems in our society. Climate change is very real, and one of the major things of my campus is the environment. Whether we're talking in environmental engineering, environmental science, environmental policy, uh, we have large thousands of students who are working in those areas, and large numbers of faculty who are working on environmental issues, uh, whether it's about water, uh, and the Chesapeake Bay, all the way over to areas in biotechnology connected to the environment. And so um, all of that fits well when thinking about the empowered university to get involved with the problems of society. The climate change issues, environment would be some of those. The one problem I would mention, if I might, that I think we in American higher education need to look even more carefully at would be uh, the relationship not only between K through 12 and universities, but the fact that such a large percentage of our students who begin in colleges never graduate. And, and while we say it's about half, the fact is that that distribution is fairly bimodal. In other words, the wealthiest places you're going to see 80, 90 percent plus of people who start graduating when thinking about four years, for example. But the largest percentage of the public's quite frankly, are, are going to be below 40%.
And uh, I am always saying this should not be acceptable to any of us. Uh, in the 25 years ago, because we were far more commuted, we have most of the freshmen and sophomores on campus and large percentages on campus now living, but we've gone from under 40% to now 70-some percent. And if you include those who transfer to other majors that we know about, we're up to high 80. So we've worked very hard to make sure that students who come to us actually do succeed. The other part of that, though, is that there are certain, certain strategies that we need to be using. One is course redesign. People will hear more and more about people who are redesigning courses, that, that we understand the lecture method is only one way of delivering, that there's the need for more active learning. If you look at the UMBC Chemistry Discovery Center, you'll see students working in groups, use of technology, real-time kind of assessment going on, use of the biotech companies on campus, uh, and, and making the, the education as exciting as possible. I often ask people the question about K-12 and universities, uh, how many of you know of students who are bored in school, just bored? You know, so being able to help students appreciate the excitement of learning, getting them more actively engaged rather than opening their heads and pouring in the knowledge, teaching them how to use technology can make a big difference. And then finally, the, for us, the number one word you hear at UMBC is grit, G-R-I-T, grit. We've been using that word over 20 years. Our Chesapeake Bay Retriever, um, his name is True Grit. And we say that UMBC is the house of grit. And I will tell you, the fact that 50, 60% of our students have a parent from another country really speaks volumes about what people from other countries often bring to this country. When you look at the wonderful people who came to New York and who went on and got the Nobel Prize, what's that quality? It is that hunger for the knowledge. And, and we're, we're arguing, suggesting, putting out to the society that we must be empowered to look in the mirror and ask those hard questions. Are we hungry for the knowledge? Are we teaching our students not only to be hungry for the knowledge, but excited about curiosity and asking the good questions. And so it is about looking in the mirror at ourselves, not just as a university, but as a society. How, how do we teach that hunger? How do we instill yes. that hunger? It's, it's, it's such a great question. I think from early years, we know that when, 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 when we go, my colleagues and I go and work in the inner city schools with kids in the second grade and third grade, and you ask a question, everybody, me, 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 me. Everybody's so excited. You know, I love getting on the floor with them and doing math, right? Because I think presidents and others at universities should be as concerned about pre-K as we are about PhD programs. But so you see that curiosity in a child at an early years, in the early years. The question is, how do we keep that from being somehow diminished? How do we make sure we keep pulling the curiosity and exciting? And, and it's about, I think, giving them incentives to keep asking the questions, allowing them to make mistakes, helping them to understand, quite frankly, that sometimes we learn more when we get knocked down than when we just keep moving ahead. And, and most important, how do we keep experimenting and trying different approaches to getting the work um, to be comprehensible and to understand it. If I go to the board and I put up a problem in differential equations and, and, and I solve it and then everybody says, wow, he really knows a lot. And then I give a test on that problem and everybody fails the test. Have I taught it? No, I have not. And yet we have this notion too often that once we've presented it, that's our responsibility. As a, as a society, we do that. 
I would argue that to keep kids excited, we have to keep thinking about what's our expectations? What, what are we expecting? Uh, the TED talk that I give on pillars of success in science starts with the idea of high expectations, but it's not just high expectations of the students, it's high expectations of all of us. What I love about UMBC is that my colleagues are constantly working, whether in digital humanities and imaging and digital art, in the social sciences, to find ways of pulling students into the work and to having them as curious as possible and taking responsibility for taking it as far as they can and using us as colleagues in that process. And when you say uh, the, the idea of using them as colleagues, yes. uh, it goes back to this idea of, of, of a collaboration, yes. uh, of partnership yes. insi inside, inside of the work, um, which oftentimes for people is not easy yeah. and it's not simple. Sure. Uh, sure. That's sure. also something that has to be taught, yeah. how, to, how to collaborate correctly. And we learn to do by doing and we learn more when we see actions rather than when people tell us what to do. And so. Part of what I've, I've, I've said as I was talking about that TED talk is also about building community among students. What does it mean to build community among students and faculty? And what does it mean when you say it takes researchers to build researchers? It takes artists to produce artists. I mean, any of us know that we can, we're much better when we've seen how others have done it. And so the collaboration that goes on in labs, that the collaboration we see in a theatrical production or working in imaging, uh, or the work that I see people doing in gender and women's studies as they're talking about and discussing these challenges, these are all the ways in which we can be much better. You know, and one of the things we say in the book has to do with all the controversy involving Title IX because uh, we talk about something that happened that was really exciting and then something that was challenging. The exciting thing that happened was when we won a basketball game against UVA uh, and here we are, a very nerdy campus without the resources of that wonderful institution uh, and, and it went well, all right? But we took that time to look and say, who are we? We take great pride in having just won a national championship in cybersecurity. We're that kind of nerdy place. We like that. On the other hand, we had a student protest, as all campuses will, and it was a time to say to students, we're sorry we hadn't been even more effective. We were working to do the right thing. We didn't do all of what we needed to do. We will be better. And the way you get better, whether it's about a student protest or it's about challenges with any group, is to listen carefully to what they say. And that's what we've been doing. We call it Retrieve a Courage. And we're very proud that we have been listening to our students, to experts on these areas, and reshaping the way we do business, changing the structure, and most important, giving the resources and keeping a level of humility. It seems to me that a part of being empowered as a university or as a leader is remaining humble and saying, I have mm -hmm. so much more to learn. It seems to me at every level of our society, we need leadership that speaks to the question of humility, confidence, yes, but humility, and a willingness to listen to different voices and to listen to people different from ourselves. I'm very proud of our students and colleagues when we have sessions that will bring people from different political parties, different points of view, and we come together to hear those different points of view with an understanding that, quite frankly, we can even agree to disagree with civility. We must teach our students and our society that very important message. When when we talk about the role of the of the empowered university, yes. uh, you mentioned something I think is really important. You talk about uh, producing an educated citizenry. Yes. 
Uh, and it seemed like when you're talking about the idea of an ed educated citizenry, this is not about how do we get more people with MAs and PhDs right. and bachelor yeah. degrees. No. Uh, it's something much bigger than that. I mean, and you, you actually talk about that on page 21 where sure. you're saying, sure. you know, producing that educated citizenry yes. is our responsibility and it leaves us with several critical questions. Yes. What does it mean to be educated in our society mm -hmm. and how is that changing? Yes. What uh, it, does it mean to be educated it, in our society? It, it is a question we should be constantly asking. The head of Phi Beta Kappa has suggested that the role of the liberal education is to produce students who learn how to present their arguments and, and to base their arguments on evidence, the importance of evidence. Mm. Number two, to be willing to listen to other points of view, not simply to win the argument, but to listen to other points of view and to look carefully at the evidence base to support another point of view. And then most important, to learn how to find the common ground. How do we figure out what it is that we all can agree to that is for the public good, for the common good somehow? And so for us at UMBC, we are through our work in the humanities to the sciences, looking at ways of helping students to learn to ask the hard questions, to read critically, but to appreciate the value of evidence in a society that is bombarding us with information and different points of view, with things being confused about what is truth and what is not. Educated people should have the skills to ask the questions that will lead to the evidence that can therefore determine what is truth. And that, at the, at the mm -hmm. essence, the heart of all of this, empowered to seek the truth. And when a person is on that path to seek the truth, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that you, 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 you touch on is that the truth has a tendency to show itself and hide itself uh, in places that you might not expect, yes. uh, in people sure. that you might not expect. Yes. Uh, how do both institutions and individuals go about finding their both individual and collective truth? Right. I, I think we can become more successful at seeking and expressing the truth by making sure that we are first understanding the biases we bring to any work. All of us bring certain points of view and sometimes we may assume that point of view is the right point of view. It may be a point of view, but it's not always the case that it's the only right point of view. And so I think it's very important for all of us as educators but as citizens to be willing to open our minds and to hear that other perspective. I've learned so much from people from very different perspectives on my campus because my campus is a microcosm of America and of the world. And people bring different religious beliefs, political beliefs, philosophical points of view, and it, it is so important to understand those perspectives. And, and also, to be able to ask questions in a way that doesn't simply make people defensive, but rather helps the next person to be more introspective, to think about what he or she's saying as we do the same thing. I, I would argue that we too often have been teaching people to win the argument as opposed mm. to engaging in the argument in the debate in such a way that we can figure out what really is the truth as we think about what's best for everybody, even as we understand that there's some things that are just absolutely the truth, that we should tell the truth, that we should make sure that we have honor in the work that we do. Have honor in the work that we do. Yes.
Yes, I think it's an old-fashioned idea, but I, I, I really believe that we as educators can show our students through our own behavior and through our working with them that while we know people can make mistakes, the honorable thing to do is to make sure we are with sincerity when we're working to find the facts and to use those facts in making decisions about what we do. So empowered to, again, look at self very carefully and also empowered to be honest about what's wonderful about our country, about our university, and ways in which we can be even better. Hmm. You actually, you, you, you talk about that, uh, you know, quite a bit, bit in the book, which I think is, is, is so important. Um, in fact, on, on, page, uh, on page 184, uh -huh. where you were talking about the fact that challenges still remain. Uh, that you know, this is not always going to be something where you cross a finish line and then you can kind of take a pause sure. because you accomplish one thing and then you have the new challenges sure. that you're there. And, sure. you, and you highlight a few, sure. uh, you know, uh, where you say, even with the swirl of course redesign and curriculum innovation, we have faculty who do not appreciate or see the need for new approaches to teaching and learning. There are some departments in which few or no faculty members have redesigned their courses in a meaningful way. Occasionally, new hires will come in to teach a redesigned course and without understanding the new approaches that have been carefully developed and implemented revert to a more traditional approach to pedagogy. This, this idea that, that, that change is always there, mm -hmm. change is not always welcomed. And how exactly do we continue to push, yes. knowing that certain yes. things will work and certain things won't, and sure. that's perfectly fine. Sure. But, but, uh, but, but that's always a complicated thing for an organization to be able to take on. You know, my colleagues were very helpful to uh, the co-authors and, and me in writing the book because we decided we wanted to hear what people thought <coughs> about why we were being successful. And I, I say this to fellow college presidents. Um, we college presidents know a lot about our campuses. There's a lot we don't know. And after 25 years, I thought I understood the reasons we were being successful. And while I may have known some, I learned so much from all of these focus groups that we had about ways in which people had to go around obstacles in order to get it done. It wasn't that we were necessarily empowering them to do what uh, needed to be done. Sometimes they, because of personalities, because of power struggles, they had to move around obstacles, get beyond them in order to get the work done. And it was a, it was a humbling experience. And so when they could say, yes, we are doing a great job in educating people across disciplines and we're producing more students who are doing well in science, including students of color, but the bottom third of the students who are interested in these majors are not having that success, Freeman. We are still not where we need to be, and some departments are more inclined to be involved in innovative approaches. Others are more traditional, and that's true at any university. And as we listen, even to people who said, yeah, and as we bring in more people, people are not accustomed to seeing large numbers of students succeed in science. We call the first year of science and engineering in America weed out courses. When I ask American audiences yeah. the question, how many of you know somebody who started off in science who changed their majors, the whole room typically will raise their hands. And the first response we have is, well, we were just not as good in science. Well, but the, the fact is that even based on the, the work we've done with the National Academy of Sciences, my colleagues and I, the fact is that the higher the test score sometimes of students, whether it's about the AP exams, the SATs, standardized tests, the more socially prestigious the university, Believe it or not, the greater the chance that student may be leaving science in the first year or two. There are many reasons for it, and it's not because the student is not working hard. So there are some structural issues. There are issues involving our attitudes about the work, and what we at UMBC 
constantly are doing and still have more to do with is just that, changing the culture to make sure students we admit have a reasonable chance of succeeding, whether it's in science or in psychology or in the arts. And, and most important, when we celebrate the success of seeing so many of the students doing well and going on to the best institutions in, in, the, in the country and beyond to get PhDs and MD PhDs, that's all great, but what about that average student? What about the students in that bottom third? You know, we as universities tend to have great anecdotes about our top students, but what about the students who are not among the top? What are we doing and what else do we need to do? That's what I mean by being empowered, to be truthful about the whole story. Where do you see higher education uh, going as our, as our as our society continues to continues to evolve? When you talk about uh, the number of people who have started yes. higher education yes. and have not completed, sure. the amount of people who are walking around with credits and no degree, uh, watching costs of higher education, uh, you know, continue continue to rise in certain areas, certain geographies, certain type of schools faster than than others. Uh, what do you see as the future? of higher education, more consolidation, more build out. How do you see this going? First of all, I, I, I am somebody with a very positive view of the future. Uh, and I say that with great confidence. Uh, I often ask people the question, did your grandparents go to college? Were your parents in college? Hear what I'm saying, only 30% have gone to college, but I know in the 50s and 60s, I know a lot about where we were as a society. Most people were not born in the 50s, so they really don't understand just how challenging our society was then. When people talk about the challenges we're facing today, and we do face challenges, I get that, but it's not the first time we have faced challenges. Go back to the 60s, either the 1960s or the 1860s, and we see some of those challenges and the divisions and all the problems. But I say that as I think about the future, because I am convinced about using that same Collins quote I used before, genius of the and versus the tyranny of the north, of the, of the or. What do I mean? We're going to see, of course, we're going to continue to see a lot of face-to-face -face interaction because a lot of people need that for a number of reasons, um, especially in certain disciplines, especially in certain ages, certain backgrounds. But we're also seeing the increasingly important role of technology, and we will see both online programs and the hybrid approach. Many of our classes at UMBC have... Uh, course redesign and you have some part lecture, some part working in groups, but you also have some things online, you have a use of technology in many ways, and you're going to see more of all those things happening, but I also see that we'll be talking about post-secondary opportunities more, not just only the four-year degree, but the two-year programs, the certificate programs, the credentialing, uh, my campus, UMBC, and the rest of the University System of Maryland are part of the Greater Washington Partnership which involves Virginia institutions, those in DC, Washington, D.C., and in Maryland, public and private, from Hopkins, Virginia Tech, all the institutions in between. And we are working with companies to look at the skills that people need. And one of the big challenges that you may not know about is that there's so many technology jobs that are not, going, not getting filled right now. Well, it's very exciting to see the work we're doing and others with that Greater Washington Partnership to have programs, certificate programs that will allow many more humanities majors in the social sciences to get into the technology field. 
They've got that broad education. There are certain courses that they can take, certain experiences, whether in statistics, certain programming, that would allow them to get jobs too. It's the only way we're going to be able to deal with the technology infrastructure we have. We're not producing enough computer science majors, and we're not producing enough people of color and women. Uh, in the 80s, for example, we had about 36% of the computer science majors who were women. Today we're down to 20% or slightly below that. It's a major travesty that we have not as a society looked in the mirror and said something's wrong with this picture. Other countries are producing much higher percentages of women. Our approach is to have a center for women in IT. <coughs> and so we are encouraging more women to get involved in computer science, in computing, and we're working with K-12. Probably the most exciting program to me involving K-12 is one for girls, middle school girls, involving yoga and coding. Get that? Yoga hmm. and coding. It's a fascinating program that teaches confidence and you learn to do by doing the coding, but you're getting that stamina that goes with, with, the, with the yoga and you're able to become an ambassador for girls in technology. And it's funded by uh, the National Security Agency and some of the other companies in the area. And, and we need to be encouraging much more of that. And it, it, so the point I'm making is that somehow uh, the ability of our higher education enterprise to look in the mirror, to be empowered as we are at UMBC, and to be honest about the strengths on the one hand, and to say, but we've got these problems, a shortage of people in technology, the need for more women or people of color, the fact that students who are from low-income backgrounds don't have the educational background and need more support. All these are ways in which we can solve problems and make the point to our society that higher education matters. It's uh, and the thing I, I love about that too is is that it's a you know whether it's that program or other programs these are partnerships between our public sector our private sector our our our, our, our institutions yes. of higher education our, yes. our philanthropy yes. uh, that everyone has a has an important role to play in this and you know even when I look at our K through twelve programs Northrop Grumman has done a great job of working with us with uh, the school system, with inner city schools, and STEM, a STEM center in those schools, uh, and, and the idea of connecting the arts and the sciences together, and engineering, and, and having kids to aspire to become engineers, having women, people of color, and others going into those schools and showing them what it's about, having our students from the university there as tutors and mentors. There's the need for this intersection of these different groups. The same way I talk about the shared leadership, we say shared leadership, academic success and culture change, we can talk about our society with the corporate, public and private sectors working together uh, with government, with universities, with companies, with foundations, with the goal of strengthening what we do in education. So we have, uh, we have uh, only a few minutes left, and you know, I want to very quickly uh, share, uh, share a story and get your response sure. to this. Is, uh, I was connected to an, another university, and when their university presidentship uh, came up, uh, they wanted to talk, to talk to you and see if you had any interest in the, in the presidency. And I, I said, I know him very well, uh, and they said, do you mind talking with him? And uh, so I went and I emailed you, and as you always do, you immediately emailed me back and said, of course, let's grab lunch. And we, we were sitting down for lunch, and I started going into it, and, and you smiled, and you said, I think I know where you're going uh, with the questioning, and because I was asking just to gauge an interest about your interest in this, in this presidency. And you said something that I won't forget. Uh, you said to me, you said, to be very honest, and again, the university goes unnamed, and you said the students who were there, uh, better chance than not, they'll, you know, whoever's sitting in that seat, they'll be fine. 
Um, the reason, the thing that brought you to UMBC, the thing that keeps you there, uh, is not just the progress that the university has made, it's the fact that you know you being in that seat matters. It matters to the students who walk on that campus. It matters to the students who are the alumni, and it matters to the students who will apply mm. to go to that campus. Um, not only do I say thank you for, for that, and frankly, the sense of clarity that you gave me in how I think about my own life and my own career, uh, I'm incredibly grateful for this book. Uh, and the contribution that you've made to all of us in terms of talking about not just the empowered university, but the role uh, of, of education in our society. Uh, Dr. Robowski, thank you for thank who you, you are and what you continue to do. I appreciate that, Wes. Very honored to be here. I, just final point would be that the, the message of UMBC is that we, we've been empowered to think that kids who come from middle class backgrounds, working class backgrounds, whatever, can be the very best and go on to become Rhodes Scholars at Oxford or full professors in biochemistry at Harvard. I mean, our students go to the best places. The president of Clemson is a UMBC graduate, young man who's in now in faculty position in the classics at Columbia. I mean, so the idea that you can have excellence in all types of institutions and that you can have authenticity. Our colleagues, my colleagues, faculty and staff, they really care about these students. It is an exciting place. Wes, come and visit again soon, please. I will do. Thank I you. will do. Thank you.